eyes may be able to see. Welcome to the It Will Come Show Fireside Edition, the show where we interview community leaders, influencers, and professionals on how they found their way in business and life. This is your host, George C.O.C. Samuels, and today's guest is Mark Voss, Chief Information Security Officer at IRIS, which is a global financial tech company that provides software solutions and services for the financial markets, wealth management, and more recently, mortgage lending sectors. Mark has over 20 years of risk management and information security experience and has worked extensively, now this is what I thought was interesting, in Australia, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, United Arab Emirates, India, and the US of A. And I love the global factor there. But Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. And it's nice not to be on an aeroplane for once. <laughs> yes. You got, you got a base. You got a base. I uh, do. I do, which is good. Yes. And just for all of you listening, uh, a little context as well. Both Mark and I work at Iris together. And Mark has extensive knowledge around, as mentioned, uh, risk management and information security. And the reason why uh, we are on the show today together is because what Mark has to share, the wisdom that he has to share, is extremely pertinent to the times in which we live and where things are more open and connected than ever. But it also means that there are a lot of risks and a lot of things that we need to make sure that we're aware of as we're navigating and communicating with each other in a hyper-connected era. So to get us started, Mark, can you please tell us a little bit about your career origins and how that led you to where you are today? Ooh. You know what? We'd, we'd actually have to go all the way back to high school, not because we're going to spend the next half hour going through this, but let me, <laughs> let me tell you why that's relevant. Yes. I was fortunate enough to go in Australia to a private high school, and this is back in the the late 80s, early 90s. And what that afforded the opportunity for me to do was basically they had a great computer network there. And they weren't pervasive across the education, uh, well, the schools back then. But this particular school had made an investment in the local area network and computing. And I just fell in love with it from day one. So much so that I managed to find the computer exam before it was actually uh, set for us, and nice. so I printed that out. Yeah, I actually sold it to a couple. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. I got into bulletin boards, which is a thing for those of younger listeners. But pre-internet days, uh, you had a modem, and people via the phone line dialed up and yeah. connected to the computer. And I actually created one on behalf of the school. Wow. What the school didn't know, though, was I started charging membership access and had the check sent to my home. <laughs> and I, I, <laughs> so that was my entrepreneurial spirit. Yes. And so I, I fell in love with computers, but the, the downside to it was I just didn't have any other interest in all the other subjects. I'm, English I enjoyed and a few other subjects, but nothing to the extent academically. So I was not interested in going to university. And back then, there was nothing that excited me in the computing degrees that were offered all the way back then. They were very theoretical mm. and boring. Yeah. So my parents were hassling me and going, look, you've got to get a job in the school. I said, don't worry, March next year, because the school calendar year end finished in December, I'll get a job. And went away for a couple of months, holiday, enjoying the, the, the school break. And as luck would have it, a friend of mine rang me and said, look, at Pricewaterhouse, there's an IT computer support assistant. You're just going to be answering phones. That's all you've got to do is log the help desk call 
for people who have computer problems. I think you'd be good at it. I applied and got the job. Wow. And that was the start of my career was in IT answering uh, help desk calls. <laughs> and it grew from there. And I had the best time in IT in the 90s mm. because it was the boom of putting wide area networks in and I put one in for all of Asia and Australia. And then the best thing happened. The internet came mm. along from a commercial perspective. Mm. And I was so lucky to have a very unorthodox leader at, at Pricewaterhouse, a guy called Graham Andrews. Mm. And I was only 18 or 19 at the time, and he put me on the World Firm Internet Governance Committee for Pricewaterhouse globally. The whole point of that committee was to work out this internet thing's coming along, how's Pricewaterhouse going to leverage it? Mm. And we went over to Boston, Massachusetts to do our meet, and that night we decided to go to the Cheers Bar because uh, oh, that yes. was a thing back then. Famous, yeah, 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 right. And I didn't know how naive the drinking age in the US is 21, <laughs> yeah. not 18. Yeah. All these other people on this committee are in their mid-40s or late 30s. So they've assumed that I must be in my late 20s. <laughs> yep. So when we get to the bar, I'm refused access. I said, guys, sorry, they're not letting me in. And they said, why not? I said, because I'm, I'm only 18. And you should have seen the shock. <laughs> Wow. With those guys. Anyway, long story short, that was the genesis of, of my career and, and I ended up becoming one of the fundamental key people driving the internet strategy for the firm way back when. Wow. And obviously security was a fundamental tenant. Like how are you going to secure yourself from the internet? And that's where I was. my career was born. Holy cow. You mentioned the unorthodox leader. Uh, for some reason, that really stood out. What was it about his, I guess, unorthodox style that helped you along your career path? So it may be not so unorthodox now, but it certainly was right back in the mid-90s. Yeah. I was a guy straight out of school, no university education, hmm. IT trained, working for an accounting firm. He was a partner of this firm. And everyone else is there, he's just got their, their degree, they're going through the motions of the hierarchy of being a grad and then a consultant, senior consultant, manager, senior manager, director, partner. It's just the way it went. But what he did with me was he obviously saw something in me and he saw my passion, I guess, coupled with the, the ability to then deliver against it. So he said, you know what, Mark's the right person to put onto this world firm committee. And I don't care that he's not 28 years old with a degree in accounting. That stuff's irrelevant. He's the most capable person we've got, so I'm putting him on there. And that's the way he led across the, the whole team. He always picked the right talent for the right person, and I'll be forever thankful because that was my career break or my first career break. Yeah. And that's why I say unorthodox. And in some respects, even in 2017, in a firm like that, you'd probably still argue it's slightly unorthodox. But wind the clock back 25 years, it certainly was so. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting how those there are those types of people uh, in our lives. And gosh, yeah, you got some really good luck around you. Yeah, absolutely. And a good career at the end of the day is a convergent of a number of things happening at the same time. Yes. Great people and leaders, timing, some luck, 
And then what you do with those things is what really matters and makes the difference. Yeah. It's, and you mentioned, you know, your entrepreneurial side of you as well. You know, I guess the same applies for startups and, and entrepreneurs as well. There is talents, then there's uh, the, the, the hard work and effort and the luck. And it, it's all about it coming together and making use of that when it does, being ready. You mentioned passion as well. I was going to you know, have a section of this interview where I was just going to ask all the straight community questions, but um, I'm going to throw in one of our community member questions for you anyways because it's related. But uh, this is from mm-hmm. Mel San Juan. What drives your passion for what you do now? What I do now is probably a little bit different to what I've just described. What I do now as a chief information security officer, you're effectively a leader. You're a leader of people who do a lot of the technical work. And you also engage with the organization, in my case, Iris, which is a fundamentally a technology company, and also engage with the senior leadership. So a large part of my role is actually people. Now, it's actually not sitting in front of a computer and looking at code or thinking of innovative technical ways to do things. People in my team do an awesome job at that. My job is to communicate effectively. And if we actually think, what does communication really mean? Mm. Or how do you really do that effectively? It's being able to really understand something in depth. And so my technical background allows me to do that. And then the second part is being able to articulate that complexity Mm. in a way that whoever you're talking to can understand it and you obviously adapt based on who your audience is. If it's a board of directors where I've presented to, you're going to talk differently to that of maybe your your developers. Mm. And so what makes me passionate about what I do now is actually the engagement with really clever people. I mean, one thing I really love about Iris is it employs entrepreneurial, like-minded, highly intelligent, engaging people. Mm. And that's my day, is talking to people like that. And we end up in sometimes some robust debates about different ways of doing things. And I find that intellectually stimulating. You get to make a real difference and contribute and change the way something occurs because you've personally been involved in something. And so it's actually the people is what really excites me about what I do. And then seeing through that contribution, the changes that occur, not just within Iris, but also the the clients that Iris, you know, provides services to. Very well said. And You also reminded me of uh, something that I was talking to uh, our last guest on the show about, and it's about authority versus leadership. And what was the transition like for you from, say, a technical specialist into a leadership role? Because a lot of people, yeah, confuse authority and leadership. What are your thoughts around that? That took me a long time, and it was a tough and difficult journey to transition to. And I'm not sure I deliberately set out to the end point that I am now. Yeah. It was probably one that evolved. So the initial challenges I had back in the 90s when I was technical was just what I said went because 
I was the technical person that knew something that no one else did. There was no debate. And also because of my age and because of how quickly things moved, you didn't really have to worry, or I felt I didn't have to worry about so much how you conveyed the message, bringing people with you in the room, because they already had the appetite. You were the person with the knowledge. And so the transaction in the discussion was actually fairly easy and something I probably didn't even really have to think about. But then as I started to get promoted up into leadership roles, without the training of appreciating what that actually meant, I started engaging with my team in a way of telling them, you've got to go do it this way, because that was the way I did it. And very quickly learnt the hard way that the fastest way to disengage with someone is to tell them what to do and not listen to them. Yeah. And, and it's exactly what I did in my mid-20s as I started to get management and leadership roles. And then that horrible process as it was back then, what we called upward feedback came in. And it was hugely confronting to me because I thought I was the ant's pants and the bee's knees because that's yeah. the way I'd been promoted up, right? And then I was confronted with all of this stuff that I was doing wrong. And... That's when it became much more profound around if I don't change, then either I've got to go back into a technical role and step down from leadership or I'm going to be out the door because no one is going to work for me. And so I went and spoke to a number of people. I found a mentor, went on leadership courses, but I had a fundamental appetite to change, not because I was ambitious, but the humanity aspect in me said, I don't want to be this person that people are describing. Mm. I really don't want to be that person. And then over the last, I don't know, uh, probably 10 years, maybe 12, 13, in my personal life, I also thought as I hit 30 years of age, I really wanted to change as a person and be much more around if someone had an interaction with me, that I felt that I wanted them to walk away that they were better off from having that engagement with me than not. And then when that became innate in my own value system, then the rest just came along with it because then I had the appetite to change. I even sought out a work psychologist, behavioural person somewhere in my early 30s to really get under the skin of what's it going to take to change. That's how serious I took it. And I did that out of my own, off my own volition to really understand what makes people tick, what is it that I've got to do differently. And as a result of those things, I think today as I stand as a person, I'm so much better off because I've now then built on that through experience and wisdom of other great leaders that I've had the, the privilege of working with. I feel like there's definitely been a leadership theme over the last uh, couple of questions, but on a very basic level, I really wanted to know from you, What does security mean to you with all the experience that you've had and all the changes you've seen since, you know, the birth of the internet till now? What does security mean to you August 3rd, 2017? Protecting the stuff that matters to you or that you're the custodian of to someone else. Simple as that. And was that always... I guess, the definition for you, or has that evolved as well? 
It's evolved, particularly the pragmatism mm. that goes with that. I mean, security people generally come in two flavours. The first one is black and white. There is no shades of grey mm. and you're either do it all in one particular way yeah. or you're stuffed. Whereas the pragmatist will take a, a much more of a risk lens and say, all right, well, what are the key things here that would really matter? And then what are some good steps that we can take in the right direction to really start protecting ourselves where it matters? Now, obviously, there are some things that aren't negotiable, such as a, a username and password, but even now that's become redundant. Other technologies are coming in and replacing username and passwords. So I'm not suggesting that. But two-factor authentication is a great example whereby even today people debate the usability or the user experience of that, which is really the cost of it mm. versus the protection that it affords. Mm. And for me, I agree, two-factor authentication is a bit of a hassle. But given that I'm wanting to protect some really key data, whether it might be my internet banking accounts or something else that's of equivalent, it's a no-brainer for me to use two-factor authentication. And for people who, who are listening and don't know what the hell two-factor authentication is, what is two-factor authentication? It's two of three things. Something you have, something you know, or something you are. So a great example when you go to an automatic teller machine to withdraw money, I don't know many people these days that go to an ATM to put money in. Yeah, what's an ATM, um, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But if you go to an ATM, you put the card in the machine, so that's something you have, and then you put the PIN number, which is something you know. So the ATM is actually a two-factor authentication, and that's been around for decades so we've actually been using two-factor authentication for many, many, many years. The way we now use it today commonly to authenticate into, a, say, a virtual private network in working purposes might be a, a six-digit number that changes every 30 seconds through an app on your phone plus a password. So you've got to have that six-digit number which changes which we call one-time password. And so you need the device of your phone. That's something you have plus the password that goes in addition to the six-digit number, something you know. And it's those things that some people just feel like it's too much of a hassle to do. And I get that. I get the user experience isn't always great, particularly if you're having to do it every other day and you're on an iPad and you're trying to move fast mm. and the next thing you know, you've got to pick up some other device to work out how to get into the network. I absolutely get that. And that's my point I'm trying to make is being having the ability to take a step back and going, all right, the user experience here sucks. Mm. So what are we trying to protect? And if what we're trying to protect actually in this particular case of authentication, it might be not a lot, then you might go, you know what, we're okay with single-factor authentication. Mm. Now, I bet you a lot of security people who might be listening to this will breathe, <gasps> can't believe he said that, and that's exactly <laughs> the point. Yep. Purist versus pragmatism. Mm. Well, that's a good segue into the next question. What are some of the most common challenges that you have experienced in you know, various companies or instances that yeah, keep popping up? And why do you think that is? 
I might talk more at an industry level yep. around the answer to that. I think the industry over the last 20 years, in some respects, are still talking about the same things today as they were 20 years ago. Wow. Which is there isn't enough investment being made by companies in information security, which is the fundamental complaint. Or secondly, from a supplier point of view, the solution sets are fragmented. Mm. So in other words, there's no one-stop shop you can go for identity management and say, you know what, I'm going to show you my identity. We're going to go through a process that might be quite arduous. Then you're going to set me up with an account and then suddenly everyone will accept that as a form of identity. Mm. Wouldn't that be great? But it just hasn't happened because the banks want to be the, the primary source. Yeah. Some government departments want to be that primary source. Yeah. And other companies want to go out and do it. And so the industry just hasn't worked that out. Mm. It's a pain and, and we've been waiting for 20 years for that to happen. Wow. And going back to my first point around board, sorry about it, company investment, I think security practitioners have failed, and I'm not saying the failure is necessarily on them, but have failed to breach the senior executive leadership or even be part of that senior executive leadership where information security is no different to some of the other pervasive risks that an organisation may face, whether they be financial, legal, contractual, regulatory, depending on what areas your company may play in. Mm. And so boards, therefore, haven't necessarily focused on it and that's why the investment's not there. Now, interestingly, in dealing with this, the US, before Congress right now, has got legislation that's looking at mandating for public companies in the US that they have a, a minimum level of requisite information security or cybersecurity skill set on their boards hmm. so that they can interrogate the management of that particular company appropriately around information security. Interesting. So we're actually now seeing that change. And that's at a regulatory perspective, but I'm also seeing now across companies, information security seems to have got over a hurdle now where it is being taken much more seriously. And I think over the last 18 months, two years, Boards are now starting to ask quite detailed questions around information security. And if a board member is listening to this and you're not, you've got to. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what your organisation does. I can promise you, you've got a computer somewhere housing critical information on something. And if that was to be penetrated in some way, there's going to be huge costs associated with it. Not that I'm trying to sell fear as the proponent to doing something, mm -hmm. But, the, you know, prevention is far cheaper than whatever that saying is around, <laughs> yeah. if, you know what I'm saying. Yes, so yes. <laughs> I think we're seeing that shift. And a lot of the malware that's happened this year too in, oh, in 2017, yes. WannaCry, WannaCry, for example, yep. that really has promoted in a good way, I think, information security practices and basic hygiene around patch management in IT environments. So mm. the kinds of problems that, you know, I've just talked about, we're actually starting to see solution sets and shifts to at least in the, the first one. The second one from an industry standpoint, 
it's really, really interesting to see where that goes. I mean, if you look at the big five tech companies, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, they're the major tech companies in the US. There are plenty of other big ones, you know, you've got Elon Musk, et cetera. But if, yeah. if you look in terms of market cap and influence, those are the top five. There is no common security platform across mm. those. And in fact, Facebook's offers their authentication solution to third parties. A lot of them accept it now. Mm. And Google do the same thing. Apple's award garden, so yeah. they just <laughs> stick within that. Yeah, and Microsoft hasn't done it either, and nor is Amazon. So just picking those five, any one of them's got the market clout to really go forth and try something, but I think they all accept it's a fool's errand at this point. Yeah, that's. Uh, you mentioned Apple. I think I just saw this morning that they're forcing – I saw this on Snapchat, actually. They're forcing all developers and all iPhone users to upgrade to i os 11 and if they don't then they're not going to provide support for any older apps past a certain version or something which i think is becoming very common now especially after WannaCry, because that is the cost of not upgrading your stuff so apple is making a bold move to force everyone including their developers to upgrade their stuff otherwise they just won't allow you on the app store and that could be like lots of lost revenue and also frustration for users too but it you know from a security standpoint, I think they're just putting a, a hard no. It's like, we, we need to do this. It's important. Yeah, I mean, Apple certainly make bold choices and, and decisions. And over the last couple of decades, they've paid off, particularly the last yeah. 15 years. And in the one that you're talking about, one of the fundamental reasons behind the scenes that taking that position mm. is in iOS 10, they completely changed the file system that underpins iOS, the operating system, yeah, because it's been running on a 20-year-old file system, same with Mac OS. Yeah, makes sense. And no one other than people who paid attention and appreciated the underpinnings of the file system, this is how well Apple pulled this off. Yeah. No one even knew when they upgraded their iOS that that was actually going on. Yeah. So what Apple's actually saying is when they, you know, with iOS 11 coming out, they're going to stop supporting 32-bit apps that the old file system was running and saying, all right, it's only now 64-bit apps. And then to your point around security, it's also a great way of just basically saying people, the developers who have still got 32-bit apps on the App Store, the chances are that developer hasn't touched that app in a very long time. So it would be dated. And so you're right, Apple is closing the door and saying, well, we're closing the door on that, those things. But Apple's always sold the value proposition that the apps are curated, right? So that's them doing their job. Yep, always about that quality <laughs> from yep, Apple. Exactly. Yeah. The next set of questions are from the community, the remaining ones from the community. And the first one we have is from Stephen Chu. And he asks, how do you see AI impacting the future of security? What's the ideal security future, fears, and what can we all do to prepare for or create a more secure future? So that's a big question and a great question. Yeah. Let's start with where do we see AI going because security is a subset to that. And over the next decade, I absolutely believe AI is going to be a fundamental game changer 
just like Steve Jobs changed the world with the iPhone and the music industry and the iPod, mm. we're going to see the next 10 years is going to be about AI. And what does that mean? Well, we're going to, you know, I predict probably the next five years, but certainly in the next 10, if you don't want to own a car, you're not going to need to anymore because the new style of Uber or whatever it will be by then will just turn up at your doorstep. There will be no steering wheel. Yeah. There'll be no other person in the car and you just jump in and it will drive you to wherever you want to go. Now, if you actually think about how monumental that shift is, anyone listening to this podcast right now and they can stick their head out and look out in the street and see how many parked cars are out there and you think about the sunk capital that's just sitting in cars, just sitting out, all of that will go away. The whole concept of car ownership, unless you're an art collector or a car collector in the same vein and you, you like driving your car. So that's going to fundamentally shift everything as we know it. Because not only that, a cleaner at home. I mean, we're getting to the robotic space and AI. Yeah. So you'll have a robot that will, that will literally clean your house yes. as many times a week as you like. Looking forward to it. <laughs> So it's ambient computing. So the concept of a computer as we know it today, which is a box with a plugged in with a monitor, if it's a laptop or it's an iPad, the point is it's a tangible device that you hold or have sitting on a desk or underneath a desk. That's what we know about computing today. Over the next 10 years with AI and computing, it's going to be integrated into stuff, whether it be the wall of your house or inside a car, and it's just going to be wherever you go. So now we start to get to, if that's the where it's going to take us, what are the privacy and security issues that come with that? And they're huge because you're inviting these companies who offer these services not just into your home but into your life. Now, arguably, we do that on a huge level today. Companies like Facebook, mm. Amazon and Google Google, you tell everything about what you're interested in and search. Amazon, depending where you are in the world, you might be buying 50, 60% of the products that you buy might be through Amazon. And then with Facebook, you're sharing your life. So it's an extension of that in the environment that I've just talked about. And so the security problems of the future are probably not a lot different from today they're just going to be more pervasive. Again, let's focus on Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon. If you look at it in terms of trust, Apple, I think we could agree, most people trust Apple. Mm. Tim Cook took its stand against the FBI. Yeah. I think most people would say the same thing with Microsoft. They'd trust Microsoft with the same level of trust. Google, generally, yes. But recently, they've just said, you know what, we're stopping scanning incoming emails and outgoing emails for free account holders on the ad experience. In my view, they should never have done it Mm. because now they've created this concept of, oh, Google, you know, actually scans your stuff, Mm. which they don't on the the business accounts. They never did. Mm. And they've just announced they're no longer going to do it at all, full stop on any account Mm. because they're recognising... I think the damage it was doing to their brand around trust. Yeah. I think Amazon have a really good brand around trust and they're, they're transparent. If you go to 
Amazon.com, the first thing it's going to greet is your name up in the top right-hand corner of the site to say, hey, look, we're being transparent. We know that it's you that's coming and we're telling you that it's you that's coming. We're not doing anything funny behind the scenes. I know that people question the Alexa, the uh, Amazon Echo, is it really listening all the time? And by the way, I have an Amazon Alexa dot at home and I trust it. And then there's Facebook. And I think the trust level on Facebook out in the community, in fact, I'd go so far as to say if another company came along and offered what Facebook does but did it with a whole concept of privacy and protection to the consumer, I reckon a lot of people would jump ship. Mm. I think Facebook's got a real problem around trust. Mm. And so the reason I'm raising all of this or talking through all of this is when we get back to the concept of AI, it could very well be one of those companies in the next 10 years or it could be a company that we've never heard of. I don't know. Mm. But the point is, whoever we invite into our homes, we're going to fundamentally want to trust them. And that's going to be actually really key. And that's what I'm looking at as a security practitioner because I can't tell you all the ins and outs technically of how things might or might not get hacked. I mean, we can all sit here and go, well, imagine what a car bolting down at 100 miles an hour down the freeway and someone's to hack it and decide to ram it off the road. We all get the ramifications of that, right? Yeah. We, we all get the ramifications of, I mean, the trucking industry will change. There will no longer be truck drivers. There'll, there'll be automated trucks. And so the whole transportation industry will change. Mm. If that was hurtling along and, and they decided to play with that or, or get inside your life through your home. So the impact is obvious. How they do it, we don't know at this point. So it's going to come down to how the companies who offer these services, how much they're going to place privacy and security at the forefront of what they do and be very genuine about it because the market will find holes in what they offer in half a second if there's a vulnerability or if they're doing something they say they're not doing, such as listening into your conversation when they're saying, oh, well, unless you say the wake-up word like Alexa, they'll be trashed and they'll be gone forever in the market if that happens. Mm. So in some respects, we've got some balance, checks and balances there. It's actually not those companies that worry me. It's actually the government. Mm. Uh, I don't mean that with my tinfoil hat. <laughs> but that malware that came out earlier this year was from a tool that um, one of the um, intelligence agencies in the United States actually had. That's actually what was the hack. And it fell into the wrong hands and then they used it to create havoc. So I actually think it's a government we need to be focused on around. I loved a lot of what President Obama did during his terms as president, mm. and I won't even go where Trump is at the moment. But one of the things Obama did do is he pushed the boundaries on the whole privacy issue mm. on the basis of, well, to protect America, we've got to have the ability to see information any way we deem fit. Mm. And so they built the systems to do that. Mm. And that's a big call. And they weren't transparent about it because on the basis of, well, we can't tell anyone we've got this capability because if they know, then they'll go and hide it away somewhere else. And hence why this whole upcry has occurred when various things have now been brought out into the public around what their capability actually is. And it's huge. 
Yeah. It's bigger than any commercial company has achieved. Crazy, huh? The next question comes from Suzy Nguyen, and she asks, what are the basic risks that we should be aware of online, and what actions can we do now that would diminish these risks? Depends whether you've got a family or not. Let's start with a family and got kids. My sister's got four kids, her husband and her. And so for her protecting the kids from adult-related material that's on the internet Mm. or anything that a parent deems inappropriate, there are products out there now that are really cool. Meat Circle is one of them. Mm. There's one with the name Koala in it, which is obviously an Australian-based company that's built it, and that was the one my sister bought. Mm. And what it does is it broadcasts its own Wi-Fi signal. So the other Wi-Fi in your, your house, you protect that and you don't tell the kids the password to that. You only give them the Wi-Fi to this device. And you literally select all these things in it to say, I'm banning the kids from being able to access all that types of categories of material. Mm-hmm. And it's really clever in the way it does it. So if you go to Google, for example, and typed in the word pornography, it wouldn't even come up with search results with that word in it. That's how cleverly it works and integrates with search engines out there. So it won't even show you the results, let alone, well, here's the results, but if you click on the link, you can't get there. Mm -hmm. So getting one of those devices for kids, absolute must-have. Then the next part, I mean, depends on how 101 we want to get here. If you've got a Windows PC, it's got to be a given. Keep it updated and make sure you've got antivirus on there. Mm -hmm. And have the latest web browser on uh, Windows, I personally prefer to use Chrome. Works well for me. I know different people like different browsers. That's cool. And then when it comes to email, make sure your email service provider has got a great spam filter and scanner for antivirus. Because I use Gmail for that and I've got my own domain name hosted with Google on it and they're fantastic. And there are other mail platforms out there that you can subscribe to that do that. And they get rid of a lot of the bad links that people click on in emails that basically, by clicking on that link, infects your machine. Mm. So there's some of the basic things. And if you're on a Mac, there's a big debate whether you even need antivirus. I personally, I don't run antivirus on my Mac machines. I keep it patched and up to date. I'm also vigilant, though, around which sites I'll go to, which I don't. And then I think the last thing is around public Wi-Fi and what you should or shouldn't do on public Wi-Fi. Mm. So in other words, you've got a mobile device, whether it be a phone, tablet, or a uh, computer. I'm very careful on which public Wi-Fi I connect to. Mm. Because in Australia, I'll give you an example, Telstra's our biggest carrier here in Australia. And Telstra offers part of their service Wi-Fi for people who are customers of Telstra. And it's a public Wi-Fi thing. I can't remember the exact name of the SSID, the the broadcast network. But plenty of hackers over time have just simply broadcasted exactly that same network ID and provided internet access to that person, but they're watching all the traffic that goes past. And if it's not encrypted, they're just happily capturing all of that stuff. And the more sophisticated hackers will even break the encryption, the SSL session, and for a non-sophisticated user on the laptop 
who might not understand, this is a problem with some of these web browsers, they pop up quite technical messages rather than just plain and simple English, stop, don't go any further, something's wrong and we don't like it. Mm. Wouldn't it be nice if it just said something like that? But instead it might say, oh, this certificate may be broken. Well, what does that mean to the average user? So a lot of people will continue and then they'll log into their internet banking. But the problem is, is your encrypted session is between you and the person who's offering you the internet. You're thinking it's someone else offering you the internet, but it's the hacker. And then they're running another encrypted session between them and the bank. And so they're capturing all your credentials. So just be really careful and vigilant around which Wi-Fi you're prepared to connect to. There's very few public Wi-Fi's I'll connect to, and I'll only ever do it out of absolute necessity, such as when I'm traveling overseas and I'm staying at a, at a hotel and they've got Wi-Fi, I'll connect to that, and then I'll be careful about what transactions I do over that internet connection, because I don't fully trust it. Mark, you're just full of knowledge and wisdom. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> The next set of questions are the more personal ones, and we call them our rapid-fire questions. Sure. All right. So are you ready for them? I am. Okay, okay. First one up. What's one book that has had the biggest impact on your life? Ooh. I'd say the Bible. Ooh, nice. Expand on that one. I actually do want to hear it. So for me, I'm not here to Bible bash or try and convert anyone. I just look at it from a logical perspective. The complexity of human life and how everything just works on this earth and how perfect mathematics is and physics is, Mm. there's a perfection to it. I can't accept in my mind that it all just happened by pure coincidence and by accident. It seems like it's by design rather than by coincidence. And so my curiosity then led me to going and and trying to understand that. So I went and read the Bible. Perfect. That was ages ago when I read it. Yeah. And I was fascinated by it. What's your favorite quote or motto? Think big. What do the words, it will come, mean to you? Wow, it will come. If you are really passionate about something, and there's a level of realism to it as well, it will come. If you were to choose any animal to be, what would it be and why? Oh, see, during this podcast, I don't know if you've heard in the background my little Jack Russell puppy dog (laughs) who's been nibbling at a bone, but I would absolutely love to be another dog and relate to him at a dog level. (laughs) Love it. And knowing what you know now, what's one piece of advice you'd like to share with us that we might not have asked you about already? Take a deep and keen interest in people, Hmm. whether it be in your personal life or your professional life, because I'm surprised every day for the better when I engage with someone, probe them with questions. They Nine times out of ten, they'll delight you with something that just you didn't expect. And finally, before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners, whether that be a LinkedIn profile or maybe even a piece of news or even a win recently? So being in the security field, a lot of people see the world as 
glass half empty. But I absolutely am so excited for the future. We've had our minds blown over the last 10, 15 years about what can be achieved. Mm. I don't think we ain't seen nothing yet to what's to come in the tech sector. I cannot wait for AI. I cannot wait Mm. for the whole energy sector that's going to fundamentally change that people like Elon Musk are working on. I'm deeply fascinated and follow very closely what people like him are doing. And then the other person that, or two people that move me quite a lot are Bill Gates and Melinda Gates. Mm. So I'll give them a shout out. My good old mates, Bill and Melinda. I mean, he spent half his career creating wealth. And and let's face it, he was pretty bullish in the way he did that. Mm. But now he's spending the rest of his life spending it in all the right areas. Mm. And I listened to an interview of his a couple of years ago. And where I take great delight in this guy, Bill, is the knowledge and expertise at which he'll talk about one of the diseases he's trying to eradicate in the world. He sounds like a doctor, someone who's an absolute expert in the field, and I think that's no accident relative to his intelligence. Mm. And obviously, you know, we're used to hearing him talk technology in the past. He now talks with the same level of authority and knowledge on medical diseases and knowing all the challenges on how to eradicate them and then puts his money where his mouth is and goes and eradicates them. Yeah. Pretty compelling stuff when you think about someone's career around giving back. Yeah. So that's pretty motivating. So that's what I'll, you know, I'll wrap up with. Beautiful. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us and look forward to seeing you back at the office. (laughs) I'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks a lot, Mark. And if you want to hear more from the It Will Come Show Fireside Chats, the eyes may be able to then go to itwillcomeshow.com slash podcast. You cannot fail. Leaders.